0: I am currently single, and as a single person, I just dread these cuffing season articles that come out around this time. They've actually already started to creep into my social media feeds. If you've never heard the term, it refers to roughly the holiday season through around Valentine's Day when single people like me start looking for short-term partnerships as the weather gets cold and your family starts asking annoying questions about who you're dating— Now, this year I actually plan on just ordering takeout with my mom during the holidays and avoiding that altogether. But not everybody can do that. And it made me wonder actually, how do different generations deal with cuffing season pressure or relationship pressure in general? I'm Lauren Berry, and this is It's Generational. This week, we're tackling relationships, both traditional and non-traditional, with a panel that includes Baby Boomer journalist John Evans, Gen Xer podcast host Virginia Heffernan, millennial writer Kendra Austin, and Gen Z activist Michelle Chubb. We started out by asking our panel about the rise in ethical non-monogamy. That's where people consensually have multiple partners. So ethical non-monogamy and polyamory have been on the rise, especially in the mainstream, although some would argue that it's not all that new. (laughs) Last year, the BBC reported in a survey that out of nearly 9,000 single U.S. adults, one in five had previously been in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. How do you think our generation views polyamorous relationships?
1: Right. I mean, I think that my generation is rightfully interrogating all systems of tradition that just haven't been working. I think people are associating monogamy with, of course, the system of marriage and the fact that that has political, sociopolitical implications you know, why is it that we have continued to uphold hierarchical love, even extending beyond just romantic relationships? Why is it do, that we think that like we have this limited pie and people need to get smaller, or bigger percentages of that pie when in reality, like our love is limitless and boundless and our capacity for that can be as well. Yeah, I love, I love that idea.
0: But Kendra, who's a millennial like me, Admitted that polyamory does conjure up a not-so-lovely image, at least for people in our generation.
1: I think in practice, particularly like in Brooklyn, my idea of somebody who is on Hinge and says that they're ethically non monogamous is a man that wears a flannel and beanie every day and his girlfriend does not know. That he's ethically non-monogamous so i think that like that that's also a challenge is kind of the way that i've seen people practice ethical non-monogamy feels like it's very much kind of just growing its legs and leaving its infancy stage
2: i will say that poly in the po- something like poly in the nights. my partner now is you know we're in a monogamous relationship but he comes from a poly relationship and poly world of ethical polyamory and when he first described it to me i was like Why not just try cheating and lying like the normal way? (laughs) Like just you backstab people and that's what's hot about it. You never know who's with whatever. Like it seems terrible to have to line up like I'm going to be with this other person tonight and I will only go to third base or whatever. It just seems like a lot of um, Google Sheets or whatever as opposed to just like emotional life. But I did understand from him that it was like he really was able to use it as a way for sexual exploration, um, absent sexual and emotional exploration, um, absent some of the like very real dangers of, you know, kind of the very real dangers and opportunities for cruelty presented by just the old mean doggy talk promiscuity of the nineties.
3: I grew up. I'm a product of the sexual liberation movement. You know, my first sexual experience, it was in 1969, no pun intended. And by 1970, you know, I started living a gay life, a clandestine gay life. And when I was 16, I made the decision that when I met a woman that I liked or a girl that I liked, that I would marry her and I would leave that part of my life behind. As if. So I met my wife at the age, when I was 18, she was 16. We got married when I was 21. She was 19. And we became parents nine months later. And off I went into my life. I would say about 13 years into my marriage, I became a raging alcoholic. And I was angry all the time. And I finally came out when I was 36 years old. And then I was off to the races. That's when I became, and I use this word lovingly because I own the word, but it is an apt description of how I live my life. I became the slut that I always wanted to be. I wanted to experience sex in all its forms in the gay world. And I was pretty popular, <laughs> you know, and, and it was a life that I both loved and loathed because a lot of shame came up for me. And because I, I would have multiple partners at any given time, and I was having to lie all the time. And I didn't let my sex partners in on my truth. So they didn't get the choice of deciding whether they wanted to spend time with somebody who had no interest in being faithful to them.
0: Dr. Raquel Peel, a psychology and counseling lecturer at the University of Southern Queensland in Australia, also joined the show to explore why relationships can be, oh, so very complicated. So you've conducted research about self-sabotage in relationships, which I think is so interesting. I think it's something I probably have done. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, since our podcast is about uh, like conversations between different generations, I was wondering if there are any data points or interesting data points about the different um, types of self-sabotage um, based on generation. Like do boomers mess up in different ways than uh, millennials do? Um, so what the data is showing me is that,
4: regardless of age group or generation, as humans, we do tend to sabotage um, relationships, work um relationships, or even peer relationships. Um, in terms of differences, I have noticed that, yes, there might be, different ways in which people of different age groups might do it but the motivation remains the same so the main motivation for sabotaging is fear of of getting hurt um self-protection um basic instinct. yes we want to be connected with one another but if we are afraid that takes over and then we are on a self-protection you know journey Uh, Different age groups might do it differently in the sense that younger people tend to lack uh, relationship skills. So they simply might not have the maturity to to be in a relationship in the first place. They might not have good role models in their lives. Um, In a nutshell, they might not know what they're doing and and that, that, that might be why and how. they they sabotage their intimate um, engagements. In older um, people, especially those with relationship experience, I have seen that the, the way they might sabotage is using that experience that they have to make assumption of the relationship that they are in. So they might have a history of being cheated on, for instance. And they might expect it to be cheated again and, and that they bring that into the engagement and they start acting in a way that might lead them to um, to sabotage their um, intimate engagement. So um, there might be different ways that we do it. But again, motivation is the same. We, we are in it to protect ourselves and it makes sense.
2: Lauren, do you mind if I ask a question for Michelle and Kendra? So the editor of Modern Love, you know, in the New York Times said recently that the old columns from people were about sexual contact with no real emotional contact and the more recent complaints are that they have all like a texting emotional affair online and very little physical contact. Mm-hmm. Is that true? That modern love thing is that a familiar dynamic to you?
1: I don't believe that the reason why polyamory is becoming more prevalent in the zeitgeist in the conversation is because of sex. I believe it's because we are forced to redefine love. We have, um, you know, this younger generation has more conversation about mental health, about intergenerational trauma, about healing, which are things that you brought up, Virginia. And I really appreciated you bringing that up because I have been interrogating that a lot within myself as a practitioner of love. Um, a la School of Bell Hooks, right? And understanding that love and violence cannot exist in the same space, love and lying cannot exist in the same space. And the majority of my friends, particularly because I am queer and exist within queer spaces and queer dynamics and queer love, all of those people also have come to understand that about themselves because a lot of those structures are not conducive with their lifestyle and their sexuality um, and the ways in which we want to kind of define love for ourselves. So I do think that polyamory is, and, and its prevalence now is more centered around redefining love and trying to heal our trauma than it is about um, sex. Um, and now the consequences are just greater because there's more people involved.
5: I think um, since growing up, uh, I have started with MSN Um, that's what I started, how I started talking and communicating with my peers in my classroom or like my family online just hand them up, say, Hey, if they were online. And I think that comes from the rooted part of why there's so much talking and less sexual interaction is because the people are so into the conversation. They want to feel the love. They want to be cared for and they want to be, they want to have that relationship that they dreamed of.
2: There's that like dating app thing where people advise you to see the person as soon as possible so you don't just get in your head with texts. I've downloaded a few dating
0: apps and I've matched with, well, a considerable amount of people. But I have a confession. I've never actually gone on any of the dates So if you're out there and I've ghosted you on Bumble, just know it's not you. It's definitely me. Really. There's just something about it that kind of makes me uneasy. I feel like I'm ordering a date on DoorDash. I don't like it. And
2: there's also this thing Virginia brought up that concerns me. Because you can, I mean, you can project anything into a text box. You know, you, it can like vibrate with anything you want, mm-hmm. anything you like your biggest dreams. You could be like that person placed the period in a way that they placed it on my heart or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. That emoji is just means love. Um, but until you yeah, but you need sort of that animal space to be in as soon as possible before you start getting your fantasy mind to take over
5: and then I think of shows like 90 day fiance or like catfish they're always talking right they're talking to each other but they <sighs> barely see each other at the end of the show they see each other and they're like eh. <laughs> maybe you're not for me so they go on to that same cycle where they reloop and recycle what they go through and I think that comes from the introduction of technology next next,
4: next. That's what I have seen sort of participants report is that because they they have choices they go through a process of eliminating the right candidates uh, or chasing that right candidate uh, quite quickly and my concern in that context is that we are not giving, um, that they might not be giving people or people in their lives enough time to actually get to know one another before they make that decision of no they're not right for me
0: next. Do you see that societal pressure for relationships to look a certain way makes people reactive in relationships and makes them sabotage it if it's not living up to, you know, it's probably different for generations like millennials. Maybe it's what it looks like on Instagram. For boomers, maybe it's like what their parents wanted for them.
4: Absolutely. Relationship expectations is is one uh, big factor influencing uh, that, that feeling of fear, that feeling of, uh, I'm overwhelmed. I can't cope with this. Thus I will avoid it. So if anything dr- anything that is driving us to avoid pain might be a motivator. So, so societal expectations and self-expectations as well. You might hold your, you know, you might hold your idea of a partner really high. And if they are not meeting that for whatever reason, you know, you think of the ick phenomenon that you see discussed in in social media at the moment. It's all about having high expectations for a partner and never finding someone that can meet that. Now, the question might be, are your expectations too high? Well, perhaps they are. Uh, So there's nothing wrong with reassessing our expectations for, for a relationship because we are not perfect. So why are we
0: expecting our partners to be perfect? And do we need them to be perfect? Another thing that we talked about with our panel of guests uh, were alternative types of relationships like uh, polyamorous relationships or, you know, just things that are kind of different. And do you think for some people that is a way to get out of the cycle of self-sabotage when it comes to relationships or does it pose new problems?
4: look i'm not sure that you can um get out of the habit of 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 sabotaging by having different types of relationships because that's something that you take with yourself from one relationship to the next and what i have actually seen is that you even take it to different types of relationships. meaning that if you are someone who sabotages your intimate romantic relationship with one person or more than one person you might actually be sabotaging your work relationships as well and even your family relationships so Because because of the idea that you are actually taking that with you, Uh, it comes from fear, it comes from self protection. So, no matter where you are in the world, you you have that in you. Um, Different types of relationships might bring different challenges. You're absolutely right. So, when we are talking about, for for instance, trust difficulty, it might be that you now have a, a different way of navigating trust in a relationship with more than one person. But I have anecdotally heard um, different people say that in polyamorous relationships, trust can be more easily attained because they, they sort of work on that before being committed to more than one person. Uh, but then again, you know, it's not to say that there aren't so many other different challenges in, in, in those relationships as well. And I, I guess the, the point would be, and this is one point that I like to always talk about when I discuss my research, it's important that we work on ourselves I think it's going to be really hard if we are trying to work on other people to be in a relationship with them. And I'm not sure that we're going to be successful. So I think that the the point is work on yourself and then you can be in in good relationships with people around you. Be romantic or, or otherwise.
1: I was in a relationship up until the beginning of 2020 that was initiated as a non-monogamous partnership and then quickly devolved into cheating. And Mm. um, it took me quite a while to heal from that betrayal wound of feeling like I had opened up so much opportunity for love within the context of that relationship and like that was betrayed because even in non-monogamous relationships, you can cheat, which is really interesting. Um, and, And because of the trauma that you kind of mentioned to begin with. And since then, I've just done so much work in understanding what it is that I seek in love Mm-hmm. And what it means to really be a partner that is available and the understanding that a lot of the betrayal that I've experienced in relationships um, was a consequence of my own self-betrayal and kind of relinquishing my own power and um, and not even really knowing what I wanted, but saying a lot of what I thought I wanted, right? And a lot of that being based on kind of lack, And I came to understand that my definition of love, um, you know, previous, like the last like three years was very much built, A, on youth and a lack of experience. Um, And that's to be more self-compassionate of like, I definitely needed all those experiences to get here. And was also just built on this understanding that like, I wouldn't have the traditions. It wasn't that I didn't want them. Now that I'm dating, I'm realizing like, I actually, I do want a monogamous relationship and I'm capable of having that. I do want trust in the relationship and I'm capable of having that. And I don't have to like relinquish those things in the name of progress in the mm-hmm. name of being a progressive liberated woman. I'm um, in the name of being a progressive queer liberated woman. I don't have to relinquish those things in order to be all of those things as well. Um, And now I'm kind of postured in, in a more self trusted space when I'm on love- a date and really thinking about like, am I seeing you? Am I seeing me? And Are all the things that you're saying about yourself and that you're presenting about yourself lining up with these core values of what I think love is now, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether it is a polyamorous or monogamous relationship?
2: I mean, a big thing that I've been thinking about that I get a little bit from Maggie Nelson, the writer, is that in the 90s, we were obsessed. Our picture of the ordinary person was a person trapped in their life who needed to be shocked out of it. As Maggie Nelson points out, like the ordinary idea of a person that might be on the receiving end of art or might be on the receiving end of a sexual advance is that they need care, that, that there's some trauma there and that you're not always just trying to punch someone in the face with how bold you are. Um, and some of the Me Too guys were definitely riding high on you know some um older idea that like of course you sleep around in the office and like i've got all the- and that's what makes me so progressive you know, is that like, I'm a feminist and like women, can, you know, women love me because I think it's great. Sexual freedom is great. You know, when like, like when you see back about about feminists in the 70s, and they're like, we're burning our bras, we're not wearing bras. And you're like, why aren't the guys protesting this? That's weird. They seem really down with this very radical move, which in fact, is just about like, more nudity and exposure to women's bodies so it's taken me a little while some of those things that I thought were so outlaw and swashbuckling and great and you know all of it the drugs the zillions of blind one-night stands looking for Mr. Goodbar don't know the person's name that I got into like and just thought was part of life were actually did some damage to me You know, I was like trying to be cool and game and do stuff that I like probably wasn't ready for. So I don't want to take away from the feeling that I'm proud of my transgressions, but I don't want to ignore the trauma either. And I want to have some compassion for the trauma and pride in the transgression. And it's a hard line to walk.
3: Even though I don't live that way anymore, uh, I still carry some shame and some guilt over decisions I made, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago sexual decisions because sex has a lot of power sex Mm -hmm. weapon you know it's used in a lot of relationships as a weapon you know Mm -hmm. either having sex or withholding sex or you know or angry sex or punishment sex or whatever whatever the case may be sex is just as can be just as weaponized as language Mm -hmm. and just as weaponized as physical punishment And I think, therefore, it requires a great deal of care and intentionality. You know, I'm 65. I might be you know, 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years older than some of you. And I have a lot of ghosts and a lot of regret. I wouldn't say I have regret in my life. I don't really live with regret anymore. But I'm still at times haunted by choices I made and people I may have hurt along the way because I wasn't honest with them
1: thank you so much for that vulnerability, John, that really, really touches me and is making me think a lot on my own relationship patterns.
2: I love this point of Kendra's about just broadening our idea of what love is. And just if we're going to say a word, not against polyamory, but in favor of monogamy, um, you know, I'm finally, uh, after a marriage and many relationships, finally, for the last four and a half years in a relationship I'm so happy in. And, um, And the wonder of monogamy, it's like, If we're here to learn about love, instead of taking a bunch of classes, 45 minutes each, it's like doing an independent study with someone. It's just like, no, it's just such a, a, like, sacred pact to just be with the same person and just, like, try Mm -hmm. to find new, richer dimensions and depth in that. Um, And, uh, you know, it seems like as part of the education that I think Kendra was describing, I think that um, there's a lot to recommend monogamy.
4: One thing that I have heard from um, people in polyamorous relationships that I found really interesting is is exactly what you've just mentioned, the the communication, the discussion of um, expectations up front. So in any relationship, being able to have open communication uh, with partners, especially in times of conflict or when things get difficult, and as a result of that, being able to lay out expectations for the engagement, really setting that relationship on, on a good path towards success.
3: Here's the good news, you know, being in a long-term relationship, one of my favorite things to do is to talk. That is like sex for me, because we have so much to talk about and so much to share and so much to say and so much to experience that, you know, wow, if I had put sex first, I might not have ended up with him. I'm not saying that he's bad in bed, that's not what I'm getting at, but the partner thing is the part that I rely on every day. I know he loves me. I know I love him. I know I trust him. I know he trusts me. I know we have each other's back. I know I I just trust that. And I don't have to balance it with five other people. You know, I have to be confused by my brain is getting smaller. My my attention span is getting shorter as I get older. I couldn't handle I can't juggle all that at my age. I can't do it
2: Mm -hmm.
3: at a certain point in your life. You have less bandwidth for for all that stuff. It becomes less important. At least it did for me. I'm not going to tell you how it is going to be for you. But for me, it's just harder. It's harder to manage it all.
0: Dr. Peel has developed a tool that she hopes will help people move into more trusting and less fear-based relationships. We'll put it in the show notes. It's all about self-work. And as part
4: of that, you could use MyScale to have a look at how you are sitting in the measure of defensiveness, um, trust difficulty, and relationship skills. So those are the three factors that I measure in MyScale. And if you are looking to know a little bit more about yourself, you could have a look at my scale as a way of saying, oh, I might be presenting as defensive in my relationships. And this might be one of the reasons why I'm finding it hard to relate to others uh, romantically.
3: You know, there's so much focus on being with someone or, or many someones that it's really easy to lose self. And I see that in a lot of my friends who are single who lament that they don't have someone or that they really wish they were, that somehow their life would be better with someone. And I'm really, 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 really convinced that the most important relationship is with
5: ourselves. It's super weird because growing up, I didn't have the self-love that I do have now of myself. I've always struggled with it. Ever since I started school, kindergarten, That's when it all started in the root of my self-love. And it's been a journey since then from now. It's a lot different. I think a lot differently about myself. Um, I think more positively. I think about um, the outcomes. I think about um, other people's opinions and how they don't matter but mine. As a generation... I think they need to know what love is. They need to fall in love with love. And in order to get that, you need to love yourself
0: first. Thanks for listening to It's Generational. We would also like to thank our panel guests, Michelle Chubb, Kendra Austin, Virginia Hapernan, and John Evans for joining us, as well as our expert, Dr. Raquel Peel from the University of Southern Queensland. Our theme music is by Zabdra. Check out our other episodes featuring this panel covering shifting language and workplace issues. This episode was produced by Sydney Fishman, Mallory Samara, and me, Lauren Barry. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review. You can listen to It's Generational on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.